It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Whenever you're studying verse by verse through a book of the Bible like we are with the book of Hebrews, it's important that we don't lose sight of the big picture, that we don't lose sight of the the main things that the author is trying to communicate. Because sometimes we start digging so deep into the intricacies of, of the verses that we're looking at that we can lose sight of how they're connected to the big picture, how they're connected to the main focus of what the author is wanting to share with us. And for the last couple of weeks, we we took a break from our study of Hebrews because we wanted to celebrate and focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I think a great way to get back into our study of Hebrews this morning is just starting with a reminder of the big picture of what the author is trying to communicate with us and and looking at the main focus before we get into the specific details of the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. And the main focus of Hebrews is really to reveal that Jesus is greater than all the things that there are in Judaism that these initial readers would have uh, been tempted to go back to. And this is why I start every teaching with the graphic that's up there that says Jesus is greater, just to remind ourselves of that's the big point. That's the main thing that the author continues to want to drive home to us. And really, there's three main things in this letter that Jesus is greater than. He's a greater person. He's a greater priest. And he's also has a greater purpose in life for those who believe in and follow him. And, you know, in chapters one through four, the author of Hebrews makes this great case for Jesus being a greater person than any other person in Judaism. He's greater than any of the prophets in Judaism. He's greater than all the angels. He's greater than someone as great as Moses or as great as Joshua. And then in chapters four through 10, the author uh, builds this case for Jesus being greater than any high priest in Judaism, and he shares that Jesus is greater in sympathizing with our weaknesses than any other high priest, because he has been tempted in all the ways that we are, but yet he never sinned. He's greater in qualifications than any other high priest, because his qualifications are so superior being the Son of God. He's greater in priestly order than any other high priest, because his priestly order is eternal. He's a priest according to the eternal order of Melchizedek, not the temporal order of Aaron. And Jesus is greater in covenant than any other high priest because he brings the new covenant, whereas all the other priests were under the old covenant. Jesus is greater in sanctuary than any other high priest because he is the one who serves in the original, the true, the heavenly sanctuary made by God, not the copy or the earthly sanctuary made by men. 
And the last time we were in Hebrews together, we started looking at the final thing the author tells us that makes Jesus greater than any other high priest, and that's the fact that Jesus is greater in sacrifice. And the last time we were in Hebrews, we looked at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 through 28, where the author reveals that Jesus' sacrificial death is greater than any other sacrifice that you have in the Old Covenant because Jesus' sacrifice was the only one that could make available to us all the wonderful blessings of the New Covenant. And so the author starts building this case for Jesus being greater in sacrifice than any other high priest by revealing that He is the one that has made the New Covenant available. He is the one that has given us all these wonderful blessings in the New Covenant of grace. And now this morning we're going to look at chapter 10 verses 1 through 18 where the author continues to build this case for why Jesus is, has a greater sacrifice than any other high priest. And he's going to get into more specific ways. The first one was kind of this general notion of he's the one who makes all the new covenant available. And now he's going to get into specific details as to why Jesus' sacrifice is greater than all the sacrifices under the old covenant law and sacrificial system. And so in these 18 verses that we're going to look at this morning, the author is really going to deal with three main things that help us see why Jesus' sacrifice is greater. In the first four verses, the author is going to reveal the problem and the purpose of the sacrifices under the Old Testament that could not justify people. And he's going to do that to show us how much greater Jesus' sacrifice is. In verses 5 through 9, the author is going to share with us a prophecy from Psalm 40 uh, to share with us that it was always God's plan, always God's purpose to replace the old covenant sacrificial system with Jesus' sacrifice. And once again, to show us how much greater Jesus' sacrifice is. And in verses 10 through 18, the author is going to share with us both the power and permanence of Jesus' sacrifice that justifies us and also sanctifies us to show us how much greater Jesus' sacrifice is. And so in these verses, we're going to see three reasons why. You know, we're kind of look before in that general concept of why Jesus' sacrifice is greater. Now he's going to get to these specific reasons why Jesus' sacrifice is the greatest sacrifice ever. And these three reasons, I think, are a powerful argument why someone who has already placed their faith in Jesus should never leave him, should never go back to Judaism as these initial readers were tempted to do, should never go to some other religion, should never try to work their way to God through their own efforts, that what we see here in the sacrifice of Jesus and how powerful it is and what it accomplishes for us, it should be something that would say, hey, I'm never leaving that. But it's also a powerful argument for those who have yet to place their trust in Jesus, that we recognize what he offers, what he provides It's a great reason to say, I want to put my trust in him because I want to receive what his sacrifice has done for me. Well, the author starts his case for why Jesus' sacrifice is greater than all the other sacrifices that the high priest made, revealing the main problem with all those sacrifices under the old covenant. And he does that in verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 10. So let's start there. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. 
for then they would not have for then would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers once purified would have no more consciousness of sin but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins so in these first four verses the author is really reminding us of some things that he has spoken about in the last few chapters about the uh, greatness of Jesus as our high priest. And he's bringing up again the problem of the old sacrificial system under the old covenant. And the main problem with the old covenant law and sacrificial system is it could not make the people who were offering sacrifices perfect. That's, that's the issue. It couldn't justify those people. You see, justification is when God makes you just as if you never sinned. It's when He takes away your sin and sees you as sinless, sees you as perfect, sees you as purified. And the Old Covenant law, those animal sacrifices, no matter how many sacrifices you made, it could never justify you. It could never get you to that place of having your sins completely dealt with. And to help show us that the old covenant law and sacrificial system could not justify us, the author says this in verse 2. For then they would have for then would they have not ceased to be offered, for the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sin. You see, if animal sacrifices justified people, well, then all you would need would be one animal sacrifice. You'd be justified. It would be completely done. And you wouldn't need another sacrifice and another sacrifice and another sacrifice after that. They would have ceased to be offered. And so there wouldn't need to be this continual offering. Because the person offering the sacrifice, as the author says, they would have been purified and they would have no more consciousness of sins. And what the author is saying is if animal sacrifices really justified people, then they only need to be offered once. But the fact that they happen again and again, day after day, month after month, year after year, showed they weren't able to deal with sin the way that Jesus can. They couldn't completely deal with it, and it shows because they were continual. So they only temporarily covered, and that's why they had to go again and again and again and again. John Robertson wrote this, An atonement that needs constant repetition does not really atone. A conscience which has to be cleansed once a year has never been truly cleansed. So the continual nature of these animal sacrifices reveal their inability to completely deal with sin. And then the author just gets right into it. He makes it real clear. If you missed his point, verse 4, he's like, I want you to understand exactly what I'm saying here. He says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. If his readers are kind of like, I'm not so sure what you're trying to say here about the, the old sacrificial system. He's like, let's just be clear. The blood of bulls and goats, it is not possible for that kind of sacrifice to take away your sins. The Greek word here translated take away means to have a complete removal of something so that it's no longer a factor in the situation. You see, our greatest problem is our sin. And what you and I need is for our sin to be taken away, to be completely removed so that it's no longer a factor in our lives. 
And that is what God does when He justifies us. He, he takes away our sins and makes it just as if we never sinned at all. But what the author of Hebrews wants us to know is it's not possible for animal sacrifices. It's not possible for the sacrifices under the old covenant to take away our sins and make us justified. And that's the huge problem that the animal sacrifices under the old covenant had. There was no sacrifice, no matter how big, no matter how much that a person could make under the old covenant that would ever take away completely their sins, that would ever justify them before God. And you know, that's the huge problem that people have today as well. There are not many people going around sacrificing animals in order to try to you know, cover up their sin today, but there are plenty of sacrifices that people are making. Plenty of things that they say, God, I'm going to do this sacrificial work, and I'm going to do this sacrificial work, and I'm depending on these sacrifices, these works that I am offering in order for you to then save me. You know, when you speak with people, the most common response or answer that people give to why God will forgive them or why God would allow them into heaven is this notion that my good works will ultimately outweigh my bad. That when I stand before God, I can say to him, you know, I did all these good sacrificial things for you, and I know I've sinned, I know there's been some bad stuff, but surely the good I've done will outweigh the bad I've done, and therefore you can let me into heaven. Therefore you can forgive me of what I've done. But that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. No sacrifice, no work that we do could ever take away our sin and justify us before God. So that's the problem that people under the old covenant had, and the reality is it's the same problem that people today have. Trying to sacrifice, trying to get their way to God, and not looking to His sacrifice in order for them to have salvation. Because there's no sacrifice that we can make to take away our sin. We must trust in Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. Which brings up an important question. If the Old Covenant law and sacrificial system that God established was, was such a huge problem, then why did God establish it? Why did He have animal sacrifices being sacrificed continually if they couldn't take away sin? What was the purpose? Well, the author answers those questions and reveals the purpose of the sacrificial system in both verse 1 and verse 3. In verse 1, we're told that the law and sacrificial system were a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things. When you see a shadow of a person or you see a shadow of a building, you can recognize through the image of the shadow kind of what it's being a shadow of. A shadow reveals there's something of substance causing that shadow, and it kind of points you toward the thing that has actual substance, that is real. So these old covenant animal sacrifices, they were a shadow. A shadow of what? The good things to come. Well, what was the good thing to come? The ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, the one that would actually pay for sin, the one that would actually justify people. They were just a shadow, kind of this picture pointing to what was coming the good thing that God had planned to come. Now, the animal sacrifices, they weren't just a shadow pointing people to Jesus. They also did something else that was very important. Verse 3 tells us, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. 
This was the other purpose of the sacrificial system because it was something that you had to do continually. Every year on the Day of Atonement, you had to bring your sacrifice to the priest. And guess what? Every year, it was a reminder of your sin. You know, when it comes to our sin, we are a people who like to forget. We like to try to hide. We like to try to push it aside, not think about And that can be problematic when we have that as our biggest problem that needs to be dealt with. And so every year, even though they might have been pushing it down and trying to forget, they were faced with that reality when they bring that animal who had to be sacrificed on their behalf. It was a reminder continually, year after year, I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior. So the Old Covenant sacrificial system, you know, it's kind of like a dialysis machine. When someone has a failing kidney and their kidney no longer is cleansing their blood of all the toxins and things of that nature, well, that ultimately will kill you. And so they have to get regularly hooked up to a dialysis machine to cleanse their blood. Now, what they ultimately need is a new kidney. That's what they're needing, but the dialysis machine will at least keep them alive until they can get a new kidney. It will do what the kidney does, uh, but you know it just kind of keeps them alive. But you know what? Every time they get plugged up to that dialysis machine, what does it remind them? It reminds me I need a new kidney. My kidney's not working. I got a big problem that needs to be fixed. Well, in the same way, the, the old covenant is like that. You know, It covered sin, but it didn't fully deal with it. And so constantly was this reminder, I have, I have this huge problem the sin issue that I need to have addressed because it's not being fully addressed under this sacrificial system. Oh yeah, it's being covered and it's being covered and it's being covered, but all that it's showing me is this reminder of my sin and my need for something greater, pointing me to something that God was going to do in a much greater way in sacrificing His own Son. So the Old Covenant law and sacrificial system was never established with the purpose of fully justifying us or atoning for our sins. It was established just to cover until Jesus would ultimately deal with our sin at the cross. And it was established to be a reminder of sin so that people could know that they needed to deal with it. So the first reason why Jesus' sacrifice is greater than any other sacrifice is because no other sacrifice could justify people from their sin, but Jesus' sacrifice does. So the problem of all these other sacrifices, you know, just reveals they have this huge issue. They can't meet my greatest need. Well, that just shows why Jesus' sacrifice is so much greater, because as we'll see at the end of this, he does meet our greatest need through his sacrifice. So now that the author has revealed the problem and the purpose of the old covenant law and sacrificial system, he's going to share with us a prophecy that reveals the plan that God always had to replace that old sacrificial system with something greater in Jesus' sacrifice. And in doing so, he's going to reveal the second main reason why Jesus' sacrifice is greater. He shares this with us in verses 5-9. through Therefore, when He came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for Me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of Me to do Your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering 
burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. So here the author of Hebrews is sharing with us a prophecy from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Now, if you were to turn in your Bible back to Psalm 46 through 8 and compare it to what the author shares here, you would see a little bit of a difference in what your Bible shares versus what we see here in Hebrews. And the reason for that is because the author is actually quoting the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is just a Greek translation of the ancient original Hebrew that the Old Testament is written in. So your Bible has the Hebrew translation translated into English, the Septuagint was Hebrew translated into Greek. And so now instead of going from Hebrew to English, it's going from the Greek translation to English, which gives a little bit of uh, a difference. But that's why you see that little bit of difference there. But it doesn't really change what the author is saying. He says, when Jesus came into the world, he said this, and then he quotes Psalm 46 through 8, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Now notice what the author is doing as he's quoting this psalm. He's making clear something very interesting about the feelings that God had towards the old sacrificial system and offerings. He says that God takes no desire and no pleasure in them. And the reason why is because he had a plan for something far better. I don't take pleasure in this inferior thing because I have a plan that's actually going to fully deal with the sin of mankind. The psalm says, but a body you have prepared for me. You see, God's plan to deal with mankind was such an amazing, wonderful plan that he said, I myself will send my only son to become one of the people that I'm seeking to ultimately save. He's going to be born as a baby, become a man, take on humanity, live a sinless life, and then ultimately sacrifice himself for the sin of the world. Or as the psalmist said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. You know, the greatest demonstration of Jesus fulfilling the will, fulfilling this plan of God, You see it throughout his life, but the ultimate culmination of that is in his death. It's in the sacrifice on the cross. You even see it in the Garden of Gethsemane right before that. He says, you know, Father, if there's any way to let this cup pass, let's do that. But not my will, but yours be done. And this great demonstration of doing the will and plan of the Father was shown in Jesus willingly giving his life for our sin on the cross. When Jesus did that, it justified us from our sin. Now, the author's main point that he wants us to know about God's plan is really at the end here in verse 9. He says, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. When he says the first, he's speaking of the first covenant, or as we refer to it as the old covenant. And when he says the second, he's referring to the second covenant, the one that came after the first, which we refer to as the new covenant. And so it says, God takes away the old covenant. Why? To establish the new covenant. 
Now, the reason the author is sharing this prophecy concerning the Messiah in Psalm 46 through 8 is to show us, hey, God always planned to replace the old covenant with the new. For those who were out, coming out of this Jewish background, who were wanting to go back to Judaism, going back to the sacrificial system, they need to recognize God's plan was always to get rid of that. It was always to replace that with something far superior in the sacrifice of Jesus. And so he says, hey, you know, what? I'll bring you back to the Old Testament. I'll bring you back to, to Psalm 40, where God clearly reveals that he always planned to do this. And the reason he planned to do it is because he didn't desire and take pleasure in something that couldn't deal with our sin. He wanted a system, he wanted a sacrifice that would actually take our sin from us, and that is what he takes pleasure in. That is what he desires. He didn't desire the thing that couldn't help us have a relationship with him once again. He desires the thing that ultimately could, which was Jesus' sacrifice. So the second reason why Jesus' sacrifice is greater than any other sacrifice is because God always planned to replace the old sacrificial system with Jesus' sacrifice because it was greater. You know, something important to understand is that whenever God makes a change, whenever God does something, He never goes from better to worse, from greater to lesser. And so when God made the change from the old covenant sacrifices to Jesus' sacrifice, we can be confident that Jesus' sacrifice is better. It's greater. It's something that is superior to what the old covenant sacrifices accomplished. So the author has given us two reasons why Jesus' sacrifice is greater than any other sacrifice. And now he's going to conclude his case showing the power and permanence of Jesus' sacrifice, it does two amazing things. It justifies us, but it also sanctifies us. And in doing so, he's going to reveal the third reason why Jesus' sacrifice is greater in verses 10 through 18. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, and from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnessed to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their heart and in their minds, I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sins. In these verses, the author shares with us the two amazing things that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross accomplished for you and accomplished for me. First, it justified us, and second, it sanctified us. And I want us to start by looking at what the verses share about Jesus' sacrifice sanctifying us, and then we'll look at what they say about him justifying us. In verses 10 and 14, the author reveals how Jesus and his sacrifice sanctified us. Verse 10 says, but, that we, but by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And in verse 14 he says, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. 
So here are these two important aspects here of sanctification. Verse 10 reveals our positional sanctification, and verse 14 reveals our practical sanctification. You see, sanctification is the process of being set apart from the things of the world to the things of God. It's that process of becoming more like Jesus. Now, when you and I look at our sinful lives, you look in the mirror, you realize, you know, I got a long way to go before I become like Jesus. So practically, we have a long way to go. A lot of changes need to happen in our lives. But you know what? Positionally, you and I are already sanctified. Positionally, we're already set apart from the things of the world and set apart to God. Positionally, we are already like Jesus. And the reason for that is because when you and I place our trust in Jesus, the position that we now have, the Bible is very clear, is we are in Christ. One of the most glorious things to do is to search through the scriptures and look at those two words in Christ and look at all the connection that goes with it, all the blessings that go with it. That's our position. That's how God sees you. He doesn't see you as you see yourself. He doesn't see me as I see myself. Thank goodness. He sees me and he sees you in Christ, which means he sees you pure. He sees you faultless. He sees your sins completely dealt with. He sees you righteous and holy because those are all the things that Jesus has made you if you have placed your trust in him. So when God looks at you, he sees that position in Christ. And in verse 10, he tells us how that happens. He says, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Remember that the will of God, that plan to save us, it's through that, that He sacrifices His only Son on a cross that ultimately sanctifies us. It's through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all that positionally sanctifies us. But practically, there's still a need to change. And that's why verse 14 says, For by one offering He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now notice here the, the, the terms that are being used. In verse 10 it says, we have been sanctified. Speaking of our positional sanctification, the day that you put your trust in Christ, you have been sanctified. It's a done deal. But then verse 14 speaks of that practical aspect. It says, we are being this continual work of sanctification. It's that practical reality of daily becoming more like Jesus. You see, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for your sin, it changed your position before God. He now sees you as perfect and holy and righteous and completely set apart for Him. But it also practically changes us because now we have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us to enable us to become more and more like Jesus every single day. So positional and practical sanctification is... Just one of these great blessings that we receive through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And this is something that no sacrifice under the old covenant could provide. None of those animal sacrifices could bring sanctification to anyone. They had no power to do that. They couldn't make anyone more like Jesus. They couldn't separate anyone from the things of the world to the things of God. They didn't have the power to accomplish that, but Jesus' sacrifice does. 
You know what? Your sanctification is not achieved through any sacrifice you make. Yeah, they could bring bull and goat and lamb and sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, and none of those sacrifices would have sanctified them. And in our day today, as we think, well, well, I'm going to sacrifice this for you, Lord, and I'm going to do this work for you, God, and ultimately it's through my sacrifices and my works that I'll be sanctified. No, it's not. Sanctification, just like justification, only comes through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. You know, I think many Christians fall into this lie where they accept the first part. Oh yeah, Jesus' sacrifice justified me, that there was no way I could save myself, but now that I put my faith in Jesus and now that I'm saved of my sin, I have to sanctify myself by my works. I got to do that part myself. Jesus did the initial part. He saved me and, and thank God he did, but now I have to sanctify myself. And you don't, and you can't. In your own power, in your own efforts, it's just a a failure that is just going to completely happen. The only way we can be sanctified is trusting in the sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf, not trusting in any sacrifice that we make unto Him. Now there's a glorious promise in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus began a good work in you. But you know what? He also is going to complete it. And that's the wonderful, glorious thing. It doesn't say, he who began a good work in you leaves you on your own and you better go complete it yourself. It says, no, I start the work, I'll finish the work. Because it's all about Jesus and His power and what He's done, not about you and me trying to do it in our own things, in our own strength, in our own efforts. So the first thing the author wants us to understand of what Jesus accomplished for us in His sacrifice on the cross is it positionally and it practically sanctified us. And the second very important thing the author wants us to know about what Jesus' sacrifice did for us is it justified us. Verse 11-13 through 13 says this, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Here the author contrasts this continual sacrifice that was made under the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, versus the one once for all, sacrifice of Jesus. And the other contrast is this continual sacrifice couldn't take away sin, and this one sacrifice did take away sin. You see, all the priests under the Old Covenant, the author says they had to stand and minister sacrifices daily. They never got to sit. As I mentioned before, as we looked at you know, the, the, what was in the temple itself, guess what? There was no chair There was all sorts of amazing things that God said, I want you to build and I want you to place in there, but there was no chair. Why? Because they were never to sit. Why? Because their ministry was never done. It was this continual ministry. They're always working and sacrificing because the sacrifices never took away sin, and so they had to be continual. But verse 12 tells us that Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. You see, Jesus sat down at the right hand. Why? Because His sacrificial ministry is done. 
He offered one sacrifice for sins forever, and that one sacrifice was enough to completely take away, to completely justify, to completely deal with our sin. He sacrificed, made it so that God sees us just as if we never sinned. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, The Christ who died on Calvary's cross will not have to die again for my new sins or to offer a fresh atonement for any transgressions that I may yet commit. No, but once for all, gathering up the whole mass of his people's sins into one colossal burden, he took it upon his shoulders and flung the whole of it into the sepulcher wherein once he slept. And there it's buried, never to be raised again to bear witness against the Redeemer anymore, forever. Jesus' sacrifice was enough to completely deal with our sin. And he's now seated because his sacrificial ministry is complete. And that truth is a a glorious truth that you and I should rest in. Jesus is resting. His, His ministry of sacrifice is done, and we should rest in that truth as well. But you know what? Jesus is going to get back up. He is going to stand from that throne, and the author goes on to talk about it. It's not going to be to get up to make another sacrifice. Instead, he's going to get up to make his enemies his footstool. And this is referring to the second coming when Jesus leaves the throne once again to come to earth. But this time he's not coming as a suffering servant to die for the sins of the world. This time he's going to come as a conquering king to destroy his enemies and make them his footstool. Well, now the author takes us back to another Old Testament passage in Jeremiah 31, reminding these Jewish readers of the truths that he's sharing are all in the Old Testament. But the Holy Spirit also witnessed, also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their heart and in their minds, and I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Now if you remember back in chapter 8, the author quoted uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, And he was quoting it to show, hey, God always had this plan of the new covenant. And not only did he have the plan, he lays out exactly what the new covenant is going to look like, exactly how it's going to be different from the old covenant. And now he reminds us of a portion of chapter 31 of Jeremiah to bring home a point because now it's in connection to the sacrifice of Jesus. Before it was just God always had a plan for the new covenant. Now it's, oh yeah, that plan was always to be done through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, one of the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is how the people relate to the law of God. In the Old Covenant, the relation to the law was this external thing. The law literally was external. It was on tablets of external stone, and there was nothing internal to help you keep the law. That was one of the problems that it had. Under the New Covenant, the relationship to the law is internal. It's written on our hearts, it's written on our minds, and we have the Holy Spirit to enable us to actually keep it. Now, the most significant difference between the Old and New Covenant is in what each does for our sin. Under the Old Covenant, sin was just covered. didn't get completely dealt with. It didn't justify us. It was just covered and waiting and ultimately pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. Under the New Covenant, God says, their sins and their lawless deeds, I'll remember no more. He never said that under the Old Covenant. 
He had to remember. He had to keep it going because those uh, sacrifices never dealt with sin. But under the new covenant, our sins are completely dealt with and justified. And the author finishes his case in verse 18 by saying this, Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Where there is remission of these, speaking of sins, where there's remission of sins. The Greek word translated remission means to be released from bondage and penalty, to be forgiven and completely pardoned. So he also said, hey, when we've been released from bondage and the penalty of our sin, when we have been forgiven and completely pardoned for doing them, then we can be confident there's no longer a need for an offering for sin. Because then the offering would have been so great that it actually dealt with all your sin. But for them, it's like, well, we need another offering, another offering, another offering. Why? Because that's what they were used to under the sacrificial system because none of those sacrifices were enough to deal with it. But the author is saying, hey, when there's truly remission of sin, when you've truly been pardoned and forgiven and your sins have been fully dealt with, you can be confident that there has been a sacrifice so great that it has dealt with your sin completely. And the reality is he's pointing back to the fact that Jesus only had one sacrifice, unlike the continual sacrifices of the old covenant, because Jesus' sacrifice was so great, it fully dealt with the sin problem and it fully justified the sinner. So the third reason why Jesus' sacrifice is greater than any other sacrifice is because only Jesus' sacrifice has the power and permanence to completely justify us and positionally and practically sanctify us. There's only one sacrifice. Only one sacrifice that has the power to justify you, that has the power to sanctify you. And that is the sacrifice of Jesus. And that is why his sacrifice is the greatest sacrifice there is. So as the author makes this case for why Jesus' sacrifice is greater than any other one, he gives these three points. First, because no other sacrifice could justify people from their sin, but Jesus' sacrifice does justify people from their sin. Second, God always planned to replace the Old Testament sacrificial system with the greater sacrifice of Jesus, because God knew it was greater. And third, only Jesus' sacrifice has the power and permanence to completely justify us and positionally and practically sanctify us. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is a very powerful argument for why someone who has already placed their faith in Jesus should never be tempted to leave, should never be tempted to say, you know what, maybe I should go try to find justification or sanctification in some other religion, or maybe I should try to find it in my own works, in my own sacrifices, in my own efforts. That anyone who has already placed their faith in Jesus, like the initial readers who were being tempted to go back to Judaism, it should be a shout, a cry to say, no, no, no. You have everything here. The sacrifice that Jesus made is the only one that will bring the two greatest things you need, justification and sanctification. And if you try to find it anywhere else, you never will. It's how foolish we would be to have found what we need and then to start looking for it somewhere else. And that was a struggle that many of these you know, Jewish believers were doing. Like, oh, we got it all, but let's go try to find it again back in Judaism. And the author's like, no, no, you have everything here. That stuff's been replaced. That never sanctified you. That never justified you. Jesus' sacrifice is the only one that has done that. But you know, it's also a powerful argument for why someone who hasn't put their faith in Jesus should do it. 
See, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, the only way that your sins can ever truly be forgiven, the only way that your sins can be justified, that God can look at you just as if you never sinned, that you can be holy and righteous before him, the only way that you can be sanctified both positionally and practically is because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And the Bible says if we will put our trust in the fact that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death, then you and I will be saved from our sin. God will give us the wonderful blessing of justifying us and also sanctifying us. And there's no other place that you can find that. There's no other place, there's no other thing, there's no way to get yourself to God by your good works. There's no other religion that's going to lead you to God. There's only one. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way, only one road. Yeah, that goes very against what our world tries to say, of all roads lead to God. No, that's not what God says. That's not what the Bible says. He says there's only one way. It's through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and putting your trust in him. The good news is we can receive that justification. We can receive that sanctification if we'll just believe in Jesus. So if you're here this morning, you've never placed your faith in Jesus. You want your sins to be forgiven. You want your life to be changed. You want to be set apart for the things of God and not the things of the world. Then you can receive that this morning by putting your faith in Jesus, by asking him to forgive you of your sins, by asking him just to come and change your life. If you're here this morning at one point in your life, you put your faith in Jesus, but it's been quite a while since you've been living for him. You think of sanctification being set apart from the things of the world and and set apart to the things of God, and you look at your own life and you say, well, I'm the opposite. I'm living for the things of the world, and I'm not doing anything in my relationship with God. It's been a long time since I've read my Bible. It's been a long time since I've prayed. It's been a long time since I've spent time with the Lord. My relationship with Him is not where it should be. But you know what? Jesus is always ready to forgive. He's always ready to receive with open arms his children that have walked away. And so this morning, you don't have to get saved again. You already are, but you can come back to the Lord. You can ask him for his forgiveness, and he will receive you. And you can ask him to help you to start living for him again.